Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, is the city stealing homes from black and brown people in central Brooklyn? That's what some advocates are saying, and a judge has recently ruled in their favor. The city of crooks, that's what they are. Let's tell it like it is. They play with numbers. Our people cannot afford the numbers, and they get pushed out of their residence. There's a whole genre of segments we do here at 112BK where we talk about policies that seem like really great progressive ideas, but that turn out to be trash. There was the episode about sex-selective abortion bans. Seem great? Terrible idea. Same with FOSTA-SESTA, which tries to prevent sex trafficking but ends up making vulnerable sex workers even more vulnerable. Today, we have some questions about the practice known as third-party transfer, whereby the city takes possession of distressed residential properties and gives them to a developer to rehabilitate as low-income housing. Sounds reasonable, but maybe it isn't, according to a state Supreme Court judge and our next two guests. Kelly Mena is a reporter with Kings County Politics, who's been covering this story extensively. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. And James Caldwell is the president of the 77th Precinct Community Council. Thank you so much for coming on 112BK. Thank you. So let me start by reading um, a description of the third-party transfer program from the New York City's website. It says, HDP's third-party transfer program designates qualified sponsors to purchase and rehabilitate distressed, vacant, and occupied multifamily properties in order to improve and preserve housing affordable to low and moderate income households. That seems pretty great. Why isn't it that great? (laughs) I was going to say yes. So uh, it's so funny you read that definition because distressed in there after doing this extensively following it doesn't kind of have a definition. So when they say distressed, it can mean literally anything. It could be like, oh, we think you have too many violations here. It looks like we could take your property over here. It sounds really good, especially because we're in a housing crisis to like try to help keep people in low income affordable housing. But then when they come after homes that have been in families for a very long, 50 years for a long time, it's like, wait a minute, now they're seizing people's properties. They're not actually using these like vacant properties to create new forms of residence. Right. So that's where the issue really comes in. When the program initially started, it was where all these vacant and abandoned buildings were across the city, not just Brooklyn, but Manhattan, Queens. Now every piece of property is owned by somebody. The original right. idea is that there was a low-income housing shortage. If there's an abandoned or derelict property, the city is able to come in, seize it, work with a nonprofit developer to turn it into low-income housing, and all of a sudden, voila, you have low-income units available available to be put on the market. Right. Um, and then on the website, there's a video that shows sort of a, a contemporary usage of third-party transfer. That's these two very inspiring stories of tenants, both people of color, who are living in buildings that are derelict. And they say that their landlords aren't improving the building. They're not fixing lead pa- paint violations. The roof is leaking. And so the city stepped in, seized control of those buildings, made improvements, and these longtime residents of the buildings were able to stay in their housing. So those are two potentially positive uses of this, right? Right. But talk to me a little bit about a negative use of third-party transfer or where it gets a little bit shady. Right. Yeah, I think Mr. Caldwell would be great to kind of talk about it. He initially started us off with this uh, with a, one of the home property owners, Miss Marlene Saunders. I don't know if you want to say something, Mr. Caldwell. Yeah, what happened to Miss Marlene Saunders? Maybe you can tell us her story. Well, well, first of all, 
Ms. Saunders, well, Ms. Marlene Saunders, she, uh, she has been the vice president for the Precinct Community Council for over 21 years. Uh, she owned the property at 1217 Dean Street, which had been in their family for 30 years. She had worked two to three jobs in order to to purchase a home because she wanted to, you know, to make sure that her two sons, you know, would be a part of generational wealth. And her home was worth, was appraised at $2.2 million. And she had a gas bill, a water bill for $3,792.20. And the city took her house for that amount. Yeah. She didn't get no warning, uh, nothing. She didn't receive anything in the mail. All she knew that in, in late August, she found out that her house has been transferred to a third party. She was shook, and who wouldn't be after working all this time and you losing your home? But what we did, we ran right over to um, Robert Carnegie's office, the city council member, and unannounced. And we went in and told him that uh, this is not right. You know, how, how could this possibly happen? How could you come in and just take someone's home without giving them any notice? And for $3,700, that don't even make sense. At that point, um, he said that he would try to try to help us, which he did. He worked with us, but for the most part, the one that really broke the story was Kings County politics. Being that I had known Mr. Witt for over 12 years, we called him up, we told him the severity of the story, and he came right over. And they wrote the story the very next day. Mr. Caldwell, where is the 77th Precinct? It's located, it's in Crown Heights, 127 Utica Avenue, right off the corner of Bergen Street. So, Crown Heights, how long have you been a resident of the neighborhood? Been oof, over 40 years. And what changes have you seen, broadly speaking? Well, the changes I have seen is that um, more people that look like me are getting pushed out of their neighborhood. Those are the people that in some of these housing, you know, that they are losing to the city, they're the ones who took care of the housing for many years. What we're really seeing is that, in fact, one family in particular lives at 374-376 Prospect Place. 30 years, these ladies have been taking care of that property. I remember when people used to get shot in there. They was in a, uh, a police program to make sure they kept bad peoples out. They did everything possible to keep that building up. And now all of a sudden, with, with Prospect Heights really growing, the city is coming in and taking the property away from them and doing a third-party transfer, which is ridiculous. Uh, one of the things that we've been reaching out to our council member, Lori Combo, is that she needs to empower black women, you know, because for 30 years they worked, they took care of the neighborhood, and now all of a sudden you want to give it to someone else. And we just think that it's totally wrong. But uh, I remember when cops didn't even want to patrol the streets. Mm -hmm. That's how bad it was. But now, thanks to their, uh, people, thanks to their efforts, things have changed in our community. So now that Crown Heights, Prospect Heights, Bed-Stuy are becoming these desirable neighborhoods where brownstones are appraising at $2.2 million, mm -hmm. you see the city stepping in and seizing control of these properties over something like a $3,700 water bill. Do you think that's a coincidence, Kelly? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would say it is if it was only one time, but it happened to six people. So I'm like, after a while, it can't e each time just be like coincidence. Just like they just all happen to be in there. You know, I said it from the beginning as I started to see some of the homes and going to them being like, wait, this is a Latino person. This is a black person, Latino, black. It's like, wait, wait, wait. This is not a coincidence anymore. This is targeting of these communities for a reason because they know that they held onto it for so long when nobody wanted to be there. Now they're worth something. Let's take it back and be like, oh, you're in some way, you're 
you're not in fi- in line with what the city needs you to do. So it's kind of it's really sad if you think about it. I mean, here's an example of a property in Brownsville that seems to be the type of property that third party transfer was created to um, rehabilitate. Right. So this is a property that had over thirty two thousand dollars in arrears owed to the Department of Finance, almost forty five thousand dollars in arrears to the Department of Environmental Protection. It had lead violations, vermin, missing window guards, and a history of non compliance with regulations, and the owner had been receiving notifications since mid-2015. So I think that's a case potentially where you're like, especially if there are tenants, those tenants are not being served by their landlord, perhaps something should be done, the city should step in. In the case of a $3,700 water bill with no notification, how did the city explain that to Ms. Saunders? They actually blamed her and said that it was her fault on her side. It was a clerical error, but they blamed it on her saying that she put it to the wrong property, like lot number. Mind you, Miss Saunders is an older lady, and I don't know, people who have seniors in their homes, they're pretty meticulous. She does it every year. You only pay one time. It's during the summer, and she goes down to the Department of Finance, literally writes out a check and gives it to them in front of them and waits for a receipt. So for them to say that after 35 years, one year she messed up and like got it wrong is like, wait a minute, she's probably not going to get it wrong after all these years. So it was like... And even if she did get it wrong one time in 35 years for under $4,000. That's what I'm saying. And her home is worth $2 million. So you think right. about it, $3,700 $3, compared to $2 million is literally nothing. She could go into a bank tomorrow and they'd be like, totally, we can cover this. Were this there any violations? Was she the type of landlord who you know, was letting lead paint poison the babies of her tenants? No, no. Her home is in immaculate condition. Mr. Caldwell has been there himself. She has three. She owns the whole building, but it's beautiful. She actually renovated it. And at the time that they were trying to take her home, the outside got redone. She did a couple of touch-ups on it, but it's an immaculate brownstone. It's beautiful. Yes, it is. So what happens then when the city steps in and seizes this property? Mm -hmm. Um, Is the landlord compensated in any way? Who gets control of this property? Who, Who owns it? after third-party transfer is invoked? Mm. Uh, well, it's kind of an interesting kind of thing. It's not necessarily owned by a nonprofit. So what they do is they put it into a kind of a holding, and then that kind of department then gives it to a third to a third party, which is a nonprofit. These qualified nonprofits are just, we think of them as nonprofits that the de Blasio administration has very connected close connections to. Mm -hmm. We don't actually know the list of all of them. And basically, they hold on to it under the name of the city. So the city actually owns the deed to the property. But it's the third party, the nonprofit who manages the building on behalf of the city. So it's basically the city's owning that land again. I see. And so then once this qualified sponsor, this nonprofit, works with a developer to uh, renovate the building, then those units go back on the market. Is that right? They do. And they go up from the original price that they were at. So what also happens is they move all those residents out for as long as they need to rehabilitate the building. But if you think about it, these are families that have been here for a while. So if you move them, they're probably not going to be able to come back because it's like they have to reestablish their whole life again somewhere else for two or three years. And then to tell them, okay, now you have to come back to the building that you initially lived in that was totally fine is like asking for a lot for a lot of low-income residents. And a lot of them have been living here for so long and have like a set uh, rent. So to move them to somewhere else, it's like 
some of them become homeless. Some of them have to move out of the state. Right. Many of them become displaced. I don't know if Mr. Caldwell can speak to this about the type of families that live in these buildings. Well, well I would just like to take a moment to back. When, when you was describing the, the TPT uh, program and how, how the city um, use it to benefit the tenants that are living in the building. My comment is that NYCHA, you know, they fall into that program. Maybe they should be transferred to the federal government. Sure, yes, they they are a derelict landlord. (laughs) Yes, you know, so how can you, you know, like the property you just described at 373 uh, Rockaway Parkway, I know the gentleman that Mr. Dorsey, and he's been a landlord there for 40 years, and he provides low income. In fact, he had one residence that has Section 8, and he has always, he takes care of his building. Uh, it's just recently that the city came up with all these violations because they was targeting his building. His building is probably worth $1.5 million, even though those numbers compared to Ms. Saunders was, you know, was high. But the city should work with him just like they work with the developers to make sure that people can stay in low-income housing. Because when the city comes in and renovates the place, your rent go from 400 to 1200 That's not low income. That's basically trying, I'm just telling it like it is, push blacks and Hispanic out of the neighborhood to create uh, a space for others. And, and I'm a veteran, and that is just totally unfair. That's not right. The city are crooks. That's what they are. Let's tell it like it is. They play with numbers. Our people cannot afford the numbers, and they get pushed out of their residence. And they, which is crazy. I mean, this is a good point, right? Because you were referring to this property in Brownsville that I mentioned had yeah. almost $100,000 worth of um, back taxes and had all of these violations. But it's worth noting that the city issues the violations. Yeah. So if the city wants to find a reason to invoke third-party transfer, it is theoretically possible that they could send an inspector out to find some violations uh, to cite the landlord well, for. Well, well, back in February of 2000. Uh, uh, 2018, 2019, he received a call from HBD saying he didn't have no violations, none. Then all of a sudden, uh, when we started pushing his case, started protesting, they sent five inspectors out to his place, and they spent, spent the, the day there writing him up once again. And I'm, I'm being very candid with this. What happened with our seniors, once they pay their mortgage out, they are accustomed to the mortgage holder paying the water bill, paying everything. And, and when you're a senior, as you, uh, Kelly mentioned earlier, sometimes, you know, they forget, you know, and they took it for granted that their bills was always paid. But mm-hmm. now that's not the case. Mm-hmm. And the city should be coming in, working with them to make sure that things are done the right way. And they don't do that. Right. And you mentioned that a lot of um, the people within your community bought this in order to start passing down intergenerational wealth. Correct. And so what do they get when the city comes in and seizes their property? How are they compensated? They don't get anything. The city comes in, takes all their equity, takes everything. You know, okay, use an example. All right. I have a house that's worth a million dollars. I owe 100000 Okay, you come in and get your 100000 I'm supposed to get change back. But they keep everything. (laughs) That is very true. There's no, so they just take your home and you get nothing, no just compensation, no equity in it. It's basically now you owe me, you owe me rent. And that's one of the reasons why there was, this case has gone so much further than just a couple of property owners because they're like, wait a minute, I own this home free and clear. I've paid it off. I've done everything. And now I get nothing. It's worth so much more. That's the whole point of owning a home. It's a long-term investment. 
And so. do, do the developers, these nonprofits and the developers that are working with the nonprofits, do they pay the city for the privilege of taking over these properties? No. no. So they get it. They they actually, so the city basically says, thank you for helping us rehabilitate it. So what we're going to do is, based on the rehabilitation fee, we're going to give you 1% of the rehabilitation fee as your, as basically compensation to you for helping us with this terribly distressed building. And that's how they make money. They don't pay for it at all. I see. Let's talk a little bit about the lawsuit. Right. So how did this come to pass? Uh, the So there's two different ones. There's one that happened in state court. But the civil lawsuit basically is there's a couple of people, three in particular, Mr. Dorsey, whose property is in Rockaway, another woman named Sherlivia uh, Thomas Merchantson. She actually became homeless because of this program. Um, and one other plaintiff, they basically said, I'm losing all this stuff. I didn't get just compensation. I also didn't get due process. They said that they never received papers on time. They didn't see anything. And they are basically telling the city that you violated my constitutional rights to my property by just seizing it and not giving me anything for it. And secondly, you violated my right to be able to show up in court and be and fight for my property. Um, and basically the city's saying, well, we did give you notice, but just because you didn't like the way we gave you notice doesn't mean that it's unconstitutional. And that they have a right based on this program to take basically take properties they deem distressed. They filed the lawsuit in February, the civil lawsuit in federal court, and the city asked for extensions, and they basically re reached their uh, limit of extensions. And basically, they're on two counts. The first one is the federal lawsuit can't go forward because this is a state matter, so it should be knocked back down to state court. And then the second one is none of these people have any claims to these buildings because under the state law, they were taken correctly, like procedurally. We did the right steps. We notified them. We gave them notice. They Because they didn't understand, it's not our fault. Um, and also they're claiming that the city has a right to take also not distressed properties, you know, like they can take any property that they deem that they need to step in and help with. Sure, so eminent domain. Basically, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So they're basically saying we did everything right. You, they're putting all the blame back on the property So will owners. this civil suit proceed then in state court? So right now what hap what's ha going to happen is Yolanda Nicholson, who's representing all these plaintiffs, she has some time to then go back to the drawing board and decide if she wants to move forward. And then they'll go back and forth for a while. And then finally a judge will issue a verdict in it, at which point if it goes in favor of the plaintiffs, a lot of that property will be restored and it could set a precedent for the program going forward at the city council level and the state level. So that was one of the two lawsuits. There was another one that actually had some good news, right? Yes. Mr. Caldwell, can you tell us a little bit about this lawsuit where six properties were returned to their owners? There was a property uh, at in Bethesda-Iverson. Uh, there was a property there that had 19 units. Property was valued at something like $3.2 million. And I think they had, a, you know, some violation. You know, they didn't really have no violation. They had old back taxes and water bill is what they owe. I didn't get involved in this stuff until um, September of 2018. Knew nothing about how the court system worked. Always believed that the court system is very fair. But then when I started going to court, I seen that this is about big money. You know, America is capitalistic. Everybody's getting fed off middle class blacks and Hispanics. You know, they auction off some like 70, 80 properties uh, every Thursday. And that comes from our community. You know, so this generation wealth is just totally disappearing and going to others to feed their family. So we decided to protest. I'm going to be a little spiritual with you here right quick is that, you know, we got a vision saying 
go downtown, get some signs made up, get a big bus, a tour bus, because the bus has always been a part of the, uh, our black history, and just roll up on a bus and go to and pro- uh, protest the judges, you know, and we did, and fortunately enough, um, Kings County politics covered the story, but then, you know, the good Lord sent the Brooklyn Eagle. They came, they came out of nowhere. Miss Mary Foss, she came around, started taking pictures, asking us questions, Next thing we knew, she had put it in the paper. Now we um we stayed out there. It was about I guess about thirty of us, and we even have a service dog out there with us also because he was being affected too. But anyway, she picked up the story, and little did I know that they put these newspapers in the come in the Supreme Court. And one day I was at court. Then this one judge walked with me. Oh, y'all all over the paper. That was the turning point, I think. And six of the properties were restored, correct, to their owners. Correct. And the judge ruled against himself, which was kind of a big deal. It's usually a different judge rules against you, but he ruled against his own ruling, which was really, really a big deal, I think, for him. Um, Because a lot of people blamed him. You know, they were like, why weren't you looking? Why weren't you paying attention? But he has clerks that do all these filings for him, so he doesn't really necessarily get to look at every piece of paper. Um, And he looked at it and was like, whoa, this is, I think, a redeeming opportunity for him because Mm -hmm. he was like, I totally, these should have never been taken. So in addition to a judge having to sign off, city council members who represent the district also have to sign off. Correct. So you mentioned that you went to Councilmember Cornegie's office and you asked him for help. You mentioned that Lori Cumbo is also um, a person in, in a district that is affected. What is the message that you want to send to council members about TPTs? The message that I want to send is, is that you have to work with these property owners. You have to work with the, you know, the ones that live in these co-ops. you got to work with because... Where are they going? Where are they going? Far walkaways, a place that they're not familiar with. You know, they don't have nowhere to go. And and I'm going to be just candid once again is that, you know, what I see that's going on in our community, you know, especially with our electives that look like us, they're too busy. And, 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 and let me put out a disclaimer here, too. I was a Democrat up until 2015. I switched over because I've seen what the Democratic Party was doing to our community. Here we are, a Democratic state, and our peoples are struggling in our community when the Democrats have all the power. They're too busy chasing Donald Trump, and our peoples are being raped in our own communities. I saw that you switched party affiliations and that you also received help, you believe, from the Trump administration or the Trump Foundation. Is that right? Yes, we did. And that had to do with an 85-year-old lady that walked into the 77th precinct was speaking to a police officer, Green, a community affairs officer. She told her, and this lady was affected by predatory lending back in the late 90s, and she told him that she was tired of sleeping in her car. The city wanted to put her in a shelter, and, and we felt that she was too old to be in a shelter. And what I did, once again, um, led by the spirit, um, I had somebody to drive me over to Trump Tower. And so one way or another, we got in, and I went downstairs and told the story to a lady by the name of Marie Wiss and to this uh, another lady by the name of Barbara Grusin. And um, next thing I knew, I was receiving a call from Lynn Patton, who is now, I think, the secretary of HUD uh, for, for New Jersey and New York. And she had um, was putting us, she said, well, it ain't too much we can do right now, but we want to give Miss Ward a break. We're going to put you all on a plane. You're going to Las Vegas to go to the third presidential debate. 
here we were up in the air. Limo met us, took us um, to the Trump International Hotel, and next morning we sat there with um, Eric Trump, Donald Trump Jr., uh, Miss Patton, had breakfast. They took Miss, the, the, uh, their wives took Miss uh, Ward out and treated her, fixed her hair, nails. Then they said, well, we're going to have a car to pick you up to take you to the debate. Next thing we knew, we was in the motorcade, Donald Trump motorcade. And after the debate was over with, she took her up, introduced her to Mr. Trump. He gave her a kiss and she said, I'm never going to wash my face again. Um, next thing we knew, we was at the victory party. And from the victory party, we went to the inauguration, you know, and the Democrats had never, you know, reached out to us like that. And, and, and I was hoping that uh, Mr. Trump would mention her name in the debate, but he wouldn't. And the reason he wouldn't mention her name, and when you Google her name, you'll see, because he felt that he didn't want people thinking that he was using that elderly lady. Mm -hmm. But I was hoping that he would. So. <laughs> do you think that he was using her? Did she end up? Uh, what do you think about the Trump administration's policies about trying to keep low-income communities of color in affordable housing? For example, HUD, um, they put forward a proposal to increase rents in low-income federally funded properties that would triple the rent for poorest tenants. And their justification for this was that they wanted to give people incentive to work harder. Well, you know, I don't necessarily agree with everything they do. In fact, I don't agree with a lot of it. But all I know, I mean, you know, I can only judge a person from what I see, not what I read. And uh, as you can tell, Lynn Patton, she's working very hard trying to get this nitrous situation taken care of, something the city has failed on for years. It sounds like you are tired of politicians on both sides taking money from, from large interests and serving corporate interests rather than looking out for for communities of color, for low-income communities who want to be staying in their housing and want to be able to pass on the intergenerational wealth that they have spent their entire lives building. Yeah, and that's very true because, you know, when you go back to, uh, what, the Roosevelt years and, and and how they knew when people were struggling and came up with these programs to make sure that the American people could live the American dream. And, you know, in terms of Trump, other presidents have done the same thing, just that he talked about it more. But other presidents um, haven't really looked out for, you know, for the American people. But going back to TPT, it, if they was taking property from the white communities as well as they taking from the black community, I wouldn't be complaining. But white politicians are not going to let that happen in their community. Right. May I ask what happened to this woman who you mentioned, the one who um, Lynn Patton invited out and... Um, you know, fixed her hair and nails. Did she Did she get a house? Is she doing okay? I just want to give a shout-out. Ordinarily, I want to give a shout-out to him because, you know, he's a police officer. His name is Detective Robert Lynch. This guy went, to, went beyond the call of duty because this detective and myself started, you know, pushing real hard for her. And with the fact that we had, you know, the Trump, you know, the, the, the Trump people working with us, so we had a little notoriety. People would listen to it. People tend to think that, well, if you with this person, you must have it going on, you know. So we was able to get her a place out in uh, Bay Ridge. You know, she's living out in Bay Ridge now. She's 90 years old now. She's still driving. She still makes, she makes all her clothes. She makes her, she makes, she makes everything. But hat, hats off to you, Mr. Caldwell. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to sell yourself short because it sounds like you actually got her into housing uh, with the help of this police officer, that you were, you were her advocate. So 
I want you to accept some of that responsibility well, as well. Well, we certainly thank you. For, you know, we certainly thank you for that compliment. But you're supposed to use your influence for your people. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what power is all about: is to use it to make sure that you work with others that are struggling. James Caldwell, Kelly Mena, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. That's the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to third-party transfer some cash into my Venmo account, or you could always review Woman 2 BK on iTunes, and please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Woman 2 BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 